you to turn in your Bibles one last time to Romans chapter 11. At least one last time for a time. Romans chapter 11, our text, verse 33 to 36. Well, I'll read that portion. There's one other verse that I want to be particularly attentive to this evening. I'll read verses 33 to verse 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In this last sermon from Romans chapter 11, we have before us what has been called the now famous doxology, with which Paul concludes this extended portion of Romans, a very significant portion, coming to a certain height. Doxology, of course, is something said or sung of praise to God, and that's what this is. It's like a hymn set in the context of a letter. I should tell you, though, that my concern is not so much tonight to open up for you the song itself. I feel here, not unlike I did at the conclusion of chapter 8, where there was another song, if you remember, and it impressed itself on me that such things are perhaps better sung than studied don't want to kill it by dissecting it. The language that Paul uses, it's quite clear. What is of particular importance for us is to know why he's singing. Why is he saying these things? You know what they mean. They express a, a particular outpouring, an outburst of emotion. Praise to God, of whom he's been writing, and now to whom he speaks at the close of this chapter. What gives? Why this song? We have more need of that, I submit to you, than to go through and try to understand each word, which is more or less self-evident. Where do we need to go to find what are the truths that are there in Paul's heart that gives rise to the song. Where are those truths and where would we find them? This is something that those who love this book and have studied it discuss among themselves. How much of what he's been saying is on his mind? Is it the whole book thus far? Is it just the 11th chapter and the things found in it? I would submit to you this evening that it's really not that hard to find the truths that animate this author of Romans here. They can be found, summed up, in the verse just preceding this song. 
Paul's song, his doxology, is about the depth of God's goodness. He uses the word richness or riches. And the depth of his wisdom. God's goodness and God's wisdom. That is what the song's about. And Paul sums up those two things in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I actually agree with those who see in verse 32 a summary of everything Paul's been trying to say in chapters 9, 10, and 11. We, this evening, with our eye on this song, want to understand what does he mean? God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What is it about that truth that gives rise to this outburst of praise on the part of the Apostle? We're going to consider both the things that I've mentioned, the depth of God's goodness and the depth of God's wisdom. But we'll spend more time this evening on the first. Whether or not we are like the original readers of this letter or not, I judge that it's the first we in particular need to have our hearts swayed by in order that we could enter into this song of the Apostles. So first, the depth of God's goodness, and secondly, the depth of God's wisdom. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of God. And later on in that, he quotes from a portion of the Old Testament, and he has the same thing in mind. Who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid. Now, there's a question in some of your Bibles, a discrepancy in the translation. Is Paul marveling at... uh, Listen carefully for a moment. For more than a moment. Is Paul marveling at the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God? Or is he marveling at the riches of his wisdom and knowledge? And it's an honest disagreement about how the passage should be translated. The translation that we're using together that I'm using here puts it in this way, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Others of you have it rendered with an of. The call that you make on this is really coming that really comes down to whether you think Paul has one or two things in his mind that gives rise to this outburst. Does he have the grace of God? And the wisdom of God in mind? Or is he just focusing on the wisdom of God? It's an honest question. I don't think it should be hard, though. He has both of these things. They're both found in verse 32. Wisdom of God and what he calls the riches of God. This word riches is one of his favorite words, the apostle's favorite words, to speak of God's positively abounding, overflowing goodness towards men. Back in chapter 2, he had said at one point, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And there Paul is testifying to the fact that God is rich in his kindness and favor towards men. And that richness is not a, it's not a stingy thing. It's an, a lavish thing, an overflowing thing. And Paul says it's intended to teach you to repent, to be grateful. 
Later, in chapter 10, he says, verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There, the word is referring, of course, to his blessings and his saving blessings in particular, in this case. But he uses the word riches to say it's not a gift that God gives one carefully measured gift per person. Thank you. No, that's not the way God shows his blessing. He tips the whole truck out on those that he is pleased to bless. He's rich. So this is one of Paul's favorite words. And if you wanted to see another place where he quite famously uses it, turn later to Ephesians chapter one, you'll see it again. Paul is so fond of this word because it captures what God is like. He's rich in goodness and it captures his ways with men. He's lavish in his goodness. I hope you can see that when the apostle says, oh, the depth of the riches of God, he's using a quantitative term. God's blessings are immense. And this is what gives rise to his praise. Which brings us to the second question I want to ask. Not just what are these riches of God, but what is so deep about them? Here's where you need to hang on. The apostle is bursting with praise for the simple fact that the saving goodness of God is large enough and lavish enough that one day it will encompass the whole world. That's why he says, oh, the depth of the riches of God. Something that the Apostle has been saying through the course, particularly of chapter 11, he's been repeating it several times, is now finally overwhelming him. Something that reflects on the true size of God's heart towards men and his saving plan towards the world. And when you hear him say, oh, that theme that we see in Romans chapter 11 is catching up to him. And it's forcing out of him that praise. What is that theme? What's this riches theme? Well, we're going to look at it. It may be something that you've missed for all of our emphasis in recent days on the glorious future of Israel, the Jews. The apostle has a great deal to say about the fact that God is not finished with Israel, that he has a glorious future for the people of Israel. But it's also a clear expectation on the part of Paul that the whole world has a glorious future as well. And indeed, that the salvation that he expects to come to the Jews will only come about by and with the salvation of the world. That's what he means when he says, verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, before we go and I seek to substantiate what I just said, just for the moment, grant me this. That is indeed what the apostle means. That's more than enough reason for him to sing like this. That'll do. That'll explain him saying, oh, the depth 
of the riches of God. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Will you grant me that? Now let's go back and see if in fact verse 32 is summing up that theme in the text. And if that's what's on Paul's mind when he sings. Look back with me to verse 12 to begin with. We see the word riches found there. The same word we find in his doxology. In verse 12, we've seen it before, he's making the case that the present disobedient state of Israel is not permanent. It will not always be this way. In the plan of God, the salvation of the Gentiles is going to provoke Israel to jealousy. These are familiar terms to you by now. But I want you to notice something in verse 12. The apostle doesn't just speak of the Gentiles. He speaks of the world. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? We focused on Israel's full inclusion. Now I'm focusing with you on what he says about the world and about the Gentiles. He uses those two terms interchangeably. A Gentile, you know this, Gentile is just a handy way of saying everybody who's not a Jew. Red, yellow, black, white, Gentile simply means everybody else. In the world, don't lose sight of that as you think Jew, Gentile. You're thinking Jews and everybody who's not Jewish. That's why Paul can exchange the word Gentile and world so effortlessly as he does in verse 12. This season of time in which the Jews reject Christ, Paul says, is the time in which salvation will come to the world. Not only that, but when the Jews are one day restored to Christ, it's going to be even better for the world. He says if the riches of the, that the world experiences through their disobedience is great, you just wait till you see the riches that the world experiences as a result of Israel's obedience. When Paul says what he does in verse 32 then, about God's having mercy on all, He's speaking with this in the backdrop. He's spoken of Gentiles and Jews, of the world as well as the descendants of Abraham, enjoying the mercies of God. Now look at verse 15. It's progression in our text and a parallel passage to verse 12. Paul speaks in the same worldwide terms. He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Again, you see, the Jews' rejection is something good for Gentiles. But he puts it here in terms of the reconciliation of the world. Paul is speaking of God's saving purposes in the broadest way possible. That's calculated to be expansive. Reconciliation of the world. And again, he envisions the time when the Jews are restored, which will bring about even greater worldwide blessing. He says, what will their acceptance mean? Acceptance of the Jews. But life from the dead. We saw this earlier. Let me tell you what Professor Murray says about this expression, life from the dead. He says that ex speaks of unprecedented quickening for the world in the expansion and success of the gospel, pardon his technical language, the vivification 
the making alive, the vivification that would come to the whole world from the conversion of the mass of Israel and their reception into the favor and kingdom of God. Paul has been saying things like this that lie behind and lead up to this song of praise that he sings. Recognize the pattern. You've seen it. While the Jews are estranged from the world, or rather from God, the world will be reconciled to God. When the Jews are embraced by God, the world will be all the more enriched by God. Here, here we've been focusing on, rightly so, the future salvation of the Jews. I'm going back to show you Paul's equally concerned about the future salvation of the world. Now look at verse 25. We spent some time here considering that expression. And all Israel will be saved in verse 26. But look again at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? It does not need to mean. It is not necessarily saying that every Israelite on that day when the fullness has come in, will be saved. We said that about Israel as he used the same language in verse 12 of Israel. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He used the same term to describe of what will happen with Israel in coming days. But you remember we said you can't do justice to that word can't understand what Paul is saying about the future of Israel unless you see in the fullness, their fullness, the vast majority of Israel. And here he speaks the vast majority of the Gentiles. The word in Paul's vocabulary, fullness, is a contrasting word to remnant. If he said a remnant of the Gentiles will be saved, you'd know it wasn't going to be all of them, it wasn't going to be most of them, it was not even going to be half of them, it was going to be a small number relative to the rest. If he says the fullness of the Gentiles, you don't have to conclude it means all of them, but it means the vast number of them. It's the opposite meaning of remnant. So Paul says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, understand a partial heartening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Part and parcel of Paul's inspired expectation that the fullness of Israel will be saved is the expectation that the same thing will be experienced by Gentiles first. Gentiles. The world. Charles Hodge, one of our Presbyterian fathers, very carefully states this stupendous doctrine. It is not Paul's doctrine that all Gentiles who ever lived are to be introduced into the kingdom of Christ. Nor does it mean that all the Gentiles who may be alive when the Jews are converted shall be true Christians. All that can be safely inferred from this language is that the Gentiles as a body, the mass of the Gentile world, 
will be converted before the restoration of the Jews as a nation. I read that. Charles Hodge said, Charlie, why are you doing that? Why are you saying it that way? You qualified it. That's appropriate. But do you hear what you just said? The vast majority of the Gentiles, Paul is saying, will be converted. That's Paul's teaching. Charles Hodge goes on to say, much will remain to be accomplished after that event. And in the accomplishment of what shall then remain to be done, the Jews are to have a prominent agency. Their conversion will be as life from the dead to the church. Jews are hardened, Paul says. But it won't be permanent. You see, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God will lift that hardening from the Jews. And that will be all the more a blessing to the world, like life from the dead. Now you're in a better position to understand what Paul says in a very summary way in verse 32. Are you surprised that some students of the Scriptures have tried to see in verse 32 the teaching, the doctrine of universalism? For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Universalism is the teaching that there will be no one in hell on Judgment Day thereafter. The doctrine of universalism is that God is so rich so lavish in His grace that there will be a way for all men to enjoy salvation one day. This flies in the face not only of what is the thunderous testimony of other parts of Scripture about the reality of hell and its population for eternity with rebellious sinners, but even that of the Apostle Paul. Verse 32 is not teaching the doctrine of universal salvation. But verse 32 and all that lies before it is teaching another doctrine. Call it global Christianity. A time that is coming when it will be fairly said, Gentiles, They've been reconciled to God. Jews, they've been reconciled to God. Never mind our nuanced assessments of America as a Christian nation. Was it? Is it? We're speaking now of a Christian world. Now, where did the Apostle get this idea? This idea that Christianity, the service of the one true God through His mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, would one day be the experience of all peoples, all nations. Where did He get this? Well, He got it from the Bible. He got it from the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures we now call the Old Testament. First and most fundamentally, he got it from what God told Abraham 
that was formative for the rest of human history. God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah, oh, he's the prophet. He is the prophet of global Christianity. The day is coming when this will be true. He says, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. This is what the nations will say one day. To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. There's a time when, Isaiah says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A time, Isaiah says, when God will say, my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul gets this from the other kind of singing that he did. This is his song. The songs of Zion foretell this time. Of course they do. You know they do. You've sung them. Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. Psalm 72. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also in him who has no helper. Psalm 86. There is none like you among the, among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, This teaching in Romans chapter 11 is what culminates in this expression, this outburst of the Apostle. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. I'll pause here once again to say something as clearly as I can. The Apostle is affirming here a future day when the vast majority of Gentiles and Jews will be converted to Christ. He's talking about a day in history. He's talking, obviously, about a day prior to the final judgment. Dear people, I said to you, this is a point upon which Christians ought to be in entire agreement. I am aware there is much disagreement within the church as to how this future reality will relate to the return of Christ to the earth. We as Christians have not agreed on that point. Whether this glorious reconciliation of the world to Christ will require His bodily return to reign on the earth for a season, Or whether the church with the enabling power of the Spirit will be successful in bringing this about. The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. We as Christians have not agreed on that point for hundreds of years. That question is not going to be settled by Paul in Romans chapter 11. Or to my knowledge any part of Romans. I want us for the moment simply to indulge ourselves. Deeply in the hope and joy and wonder at the riches of God 
It is still His plan to bring about the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. He may have consigned the Gentiles first to disobedience and then the Jews to disobedience, but He has done so in order that He might have mercy on both Jews, then Gentiles, then Jews again. You live with the confidence of that, the hope of that. For the moment, without delving into the details upon upon which Christians have disagreed, do you live with a sense of victory already in your mouth tasted? Probably not. And no small fault of this pulpit, for which I again repent. The Scriptures are saying what they sound like they're saying. That God is going to bring about for the glory of His name a whole earth full of the knowledge of God. Here's what that kind of confidence might look like among us and even among our children. Pardon me if this is the second time you've heard this. I spoke of Charles Hodge a moment ago, and Charles Hodge was a theologian and teacher at Princeton Seminary. And his son, Archibald Alexander Hodge, would follow him to be a professor at Princeton as well. The account I am referring to occurred in the home of the Charles Hodges when Archibald was only a 10-year-old boy and a sister of similar age, Mary Elizabeth. They had seminary students in their home, as you'd expect from a home whose father taught in the seminary and the campus was right there within walking distance. Apparently the Hodge children became quite attached to one seminarian who was graduating and going off to the mission field. Not an uncommon thing for Princeton graduates in that day. A note was given on the part of the two Hodge children to this seminary student, and the note read thus, Dear heathen, the Lord Jesus Christ hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And if this was promised by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help it to come sooner? By reading the Bible and attending to the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols, take Christianity into your temples. Soon there will not be a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will want a missionary. My sister and myself have procured two dollars which are enclosed in this letter, to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. Well, you have seen, I suspect, as commendable sentiments from many of your children. Have they been as large in their hope of the success of the gospel as that? If not, is it because ours is not? Paul is singing about the riches of God because it's God's plan on a day to come to have mercy on all 
The day is coming when Jews and Gentiles will receive mercy. But as wonderful as that is, isn't it a strange way that God has ordained that that day would finally come? What a strange path to lead to such a day. That brings us to our second point, which I said I would not spend quite as much time And that is the depth of God's wisdom. Paul's not only singing about the riches of God, but also about his wisdom and knowledge. Paul is capturing all that is true of God that makes this plan of salvation so brilliant. What is so deep about God's wisdom and knowledge that causes the apostle to sing Well, it is precisely that strange, unexpected path to glory for the earth. If the salvation of the world is what God is after, isn't it a rather tortuous route that he's taken to get there? Does that ever come to your mind? Yes. The book of Romans has not been written with merely the concern to defend God's intention to save men. The book of Romans has been written as well in order to defend God's intention to save men in such a way that most glorifies His holy name. You see, God's purpose is to save the world are not ultimate. He is intent on doing that. In a day yet coming. In such a way that that day and everything that gave rise to that day, that came before that day, will magnify His mercy. Verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I've said to you there's something wonderful. Perhaps even too wonderful for some of you yet to get your heart around. There's also something dreadful, fearful about verse 32. You see, the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but all of Romans, is that the glory of God is what he's chiefly after. That's God's chief end. It's to glorify himself. And so Paul has been painstakingly demonstrating to us that God is willing to leave the greater number of earth's inhabitants in their sins. He was willing to do that until the dawn of the new covenant. He was willing to consign them to disobedience. And they perished in great numbers. In order that the dawn of the new covenant age and the offer of the gospel to the world, His grace would be seen more glorious. It would be mercy to sinners that would be on display 
And God is presently willing to leave the greater number of Jews in their sins until the fullness of the Gentiles are redeemed in order that even with his people, the Jews, they might recognize history would scream it if they didn't. It's just the mercy of God that after so long he's delivered us as a nation back out of the ash heap to which we'd fallen in human history. Verse 32 is saying to us that there's a twofold work of God in the world. There's a consigning to disobedience. There's a showing of mercy. God has filled human history with the former, that the latter on that final season of human history His mercy would be all the more glorious. Why is it so wise of God to do it that way? We need to be prepared to say we probably cannot know that fully. Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. But we can know at least this much. It's been a refrain in Romans. Particularly the last few chapters. God is after, above all, his glory. Remember Paul had quoted from the Pentateuch where God tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul is looking at the whole span of human history. By the inspiration of the Spirit, he's able to look at all the past. And at least in broad strokes, he's able to look forward to all the future. And he says this whole span of human history displays both the mercy and the justice of God. The day will come when Gentiles will understand God's mercy in light of what they've been delivered from. And so too Jews will understand his mercy in light of what they've been delivered from. Because God is, in showing that mercy, seeking a name for himself. That's why Paul concludes, I've preached on this before. For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. This is a high and holy view of God that Paul leaves us with. Maybe a far higher view than you've been accustomed to thinking of his riches. It's likely also a higher view, a more mysterious view of his wisdom. But both of those things are what make Paul sing. Amen.